If you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Isaiah. If you don't have one, please grab that hardback uh, that's under that chair around you somewhere and uh, turn to the prophet Isaiah. And this morning we're going to look at just one verse of Scripture, uh, really kind of focusing our attention on one verse, verse 1 of chapter 1. But this is an introduction into a lengthy study that we will be in as we travel through throughout uh, this year and probably next into how many sermons we will actually have as we deal with many books or many uh, chapters of this, this one single book, this one single prophet. Uh, the, the prophet Isaiah, I think, is one of the most important books of the Old Testament, maybe one of the most important books of the entire Bible because of what it contains and what it points to and what it informs us of. If you are unfamiliar with Isaiah, if you are unfamiliar with this prophet, then it is my hope, it is my prayer that, that our study of this book will bring about an importance and an impact into why, why this book is here in the Bible, why this is so important. And if you are familiar with Isaiah, if maybe in your reading plan you have just completed Isaiah, you're like, oh great, here we go, I'm going to hear the same thing again. It is my hope that your passion for this book is kindled, is, is uh, brought into flame again, because I do think it is one of the most important books of the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. And so we're going to spend some time looking at this one singular prophet, and we'll have some breaks in there throughout this year as we study through this. In 1946, there's a young shepherd boy that went looking for a sheep uh, in the land of Israel. Well, this is before Israel was actually a nation, because that was 1949. But in 46, he was looking for his lost sheep, and he, he throws a rock into a cave, and he hears not, the, not a sheep in response, but a crash of pottery. And so he goes to investigate, and he jumps down into this hole in the ground that, that was there, and uh, he discovers a treasure trove of ancient manuscripts. Over the next decade, archaeologists had flocked to the scene around the Dead Sea, and they uncovered about 981 different manuscript texts, pieces and fragments, and also entire books of the Bible that they discovered. And among these hundreds of discoveries, they found um, there were many different books of the Old Testament scriptures that were found, also some extra biblical texts that they found as well. But in their discovery, there was only one book that was discovered in near completion, and that was the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. In this discovery, over this decade of time, out of this 981 different discoveries that they had, there was 21 copies and pieces of Isaiah that were uncovered. 21. The most out of any other book of the Bible or any other text that was found, Isaiah was the number one. And you can go even to, uh, to Jerusalem today and go to the Dead Sea Scroll Museum and you can see the Isaiah scroll that they discovered. You can see the actual one that they uncovered and they have it unraveled uh, there in the museum. So the first century Israelites that were escaping the, the Jewish war that was coming down on them at 66 to 70 AD, they, they ran, they ran to around Qumran and this community uh, took these texts with them and they scattered throughout these caves that were there and they preserved these scriptures, and specifically Isaiah. So why did they do this? Why was this book of more importance than at least what they've discovered so far, any other book of the Old Testament? 
Well, I, I think we have a lot to learn from the prophet Isaiah, and I think these first century Israelites understood that there was a lot to be uncovered. There was a lot of truth. There was, there was a lot of hope that was found in Isaiah. So let me ask you this question. What does a prophet do? As we talk about prophets, what is the purpose of a prophet? And maybe you think in your mind, well, a, a prophet uh, just foretells the future. They proclaim God's word to people, and they, they tell the future. Or maybe you would say, well, they, they mostly just give bad news to kings. They give bad news to nations. Like, they're just kind of the, the bad news crew. And they show up and they just ruin everybody's day. And I think of, like, Nathan the prophet with David, right? You know the story where he, he looks David in the, faith, in the face after he tells him a cute little story about a sheep being killed. And he's like, you're the man. And not in a good way, like, you're the man. But in, like, you're the guy that has sinned. And so usually whenever I think of a prophet, I think of one that brings bad news, usually a lot of it, and then foretells some sort of, again, bad news uh, to a king or to a, a people. And I think all this is true of prophets. They do this. This is, this is how they act. This is what we see in Scripture. Um, and I think also most of the time what we see from Scripture is that prophets are usually hated. They're hated by kings. They're hated by people because that's usually what they bring is bad news. They don't usually have uh, great things to, to say or maybe to write to a group. And so it's usually, uh, they're kind of, you know, seen as a necessary evil of sorts. It's like, well, we have to have him around because, you know, we can't kill him if he's really God's man, but we don't really like what God's saying to us through this man. And so the poor prophet Isaiah is, is one of those. But what I want you to consider about prophets and specifically about Isaiah is, is this idea that prophets bring reality into focus. Prophets bring reality into focus. And what I mean by that is that people have a tendency to stay in a headspace that is not reality. They, they live in a place in their minds that doesn't really exist. They spend their time thinking of a future that's not actually going to be the future. They spend their time in the past, and that's exactly what it is. The past, it's not the current reality, and usually the past is distorted by some sort of experience that they had or some other word that's been said or their just forgetfulness, and so there's a clouding of what is actually real or true. They're consumed with entertainment or sports or a, a virtual world where they can act as God themselves. Facebook um, and the founder, Mark Zuckerberg, is launching something called Meta. Maybe you've heard of it, Meta. And this will enhance people's efforts at really this, of, of really being consumed with a virtual world. It's given people a way to, to feel more connected with people at the same time as being disconnected from people, which is ironic, right? And, and what this is, it gives people an opportunity to create their own world. And so they can, they can have communication with each other, but they create their own virtual world while they're doing it. And they invite people into these virtual spaces so they can have this kind of conversation or connectivity. And I think it's no wonder that we, we have been flooded with the issues of transgenderism and gender identity since we have a society that loves the idea of being whatever you want, whenever you want, and that you can create your own reality. Your own reality may be via virtual reality. This mentality has not been avoided by the church. It's often that we, as Christians, act as if God doesn't even exist. Maybe you could say that we're Christian atheists of sorts. 
Because we live by our own rules, we, we live by our own perspectives, our own wants, our own passions, and not necessarily by God's. Our behavior would indicate that God is really not the author of reality, but that we are the authors of reality. And some Christians act as if they are God and that they get to determine what is real and what is not real. Well, God is the one who establishes what reality is and what truth is. Amen? He is the one that determines what is real. He is the one that determines what is true. And this is where the prophet of God comes in to help us because he brings to us what reality really is. We hear from him, from God, and God is the author of reality. It's not some distortion or perversion of what reality is. It's real truth that's being given to us by the prophet. God's perspective is always right. It's never skewed. When he speaks of the past, he's always accurate about the past. He's always accurate about the present, and he always knows the future. So the prophets of the Old Testament would bring people what is real, what reality is. It's a reality check, if you will, to the people. And without God, we have no reality. If God was not there, you could create your own world and be whatever you want to be, but because God does exist and God is there, reality is determined based upon Him and Him alone. Prophets bring reality into focus. They help us see what we've been missing. They help us understand what, what is really in your heart, what is really in your practice, what is really in your theology. They help us understand what we really believe and what we really don't believe. Prophets help us to see the world through God's eyes with a, a heavenly lens on our glasses. Not that maybe the rose-colored glasses that we look at the world through, or maybe our own situation, our own heart through, but really clarity, clarity of what's true and real. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to prepare yourself as we study through this book to prepare your heart to see the world through God's eyes. See what reality is through the words of this prophet Isaiah and ask the Lord even now, in this moment, ask the Lord to help you really understand reality. And He is the one that determines what reality is. So this morning's message, it's going to be an introduction to this book. It's going to be an introduction to this prophet Isaiah. And we're going to look at this in just one verse, but we're going to look at this in three, three ways. We're going to look at the, the when, the what, and the who of verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we're going to look at the when, the what, and the who of verse 1. So the when, for those of you that are timeline kind of people, uh, very linear kind of thinkers, kind of like myself, uh, I love you. Um, let me give you some dates because you need those, right? Because your notes will be incomplete if you don't have them and you'll be You'll be like digging through your study Bible trying to find those things. Let me just help you. 739 to 686 B.C. That's the time that we're talking about. This is 200 years after the split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. 
So if you're unfamiliar with the, the Jewish history, there was a split after King Solomon had died. There was a split of the kingdom of the 12 tribes into 10 and 2. And the southern kingdom contains Judah, which we've talked about this morning. And this southern kingdom is named Judah. The northern kingdom was named Israel. So this is 200 years that Isaiah is writing uh, his prophecies and, and his words are coming 200 years after this split has happened. And this is a very significant thing to the storyline of Isaiah. So the, the famous Charles Dickens line that maybe you know would describe this situation pretty well, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Both of those things are true at the same time, and we call that a paradox, right? This is a paradoxical moment that we have during Isaiah. Now, why does this describe Isaiah? Because during his life, there were four kings, which we see here in verse 1. There's four kings listed of Judah that lived in the lifespan of Isaiah. And during Isaiah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel, they had been overtaken by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians came from the northeast, and they, they came in, they ransacked the land, they kidnapped people, brought them back to Assyria, and the southern kingdom avoided the takeover. It didn't, it didn't uh, come upon them, but only the northern kingdom. So the best of times was in the fact that the southern kingdom avoided being taken away in the captivity and, and having everything taken away from them. And this is happening during Isaiah's day. Also, one of the best of times moments would be whenever King Hezekiah, that's mentioned here in verse 1, the last king that's mentioned, when Hezekiah assumed the throne over Judah, what he did was turn the people or help turn the people back to a revival of God, back to following God. Now, the bad that's included here in Isaiah, there, there's a lot of things, but what we find in the book of Isaiah is Judah's rapid decline into apostasy or into a, a, an abandoning of God, which was really attributed to the fact of the northern kingdom falling to the Assyrians. Why did they get overtaken? Because of their apostasy. And it was a lesson to the southern kingdom to not do the same thing. And what do we see happen? The exact same thing. Now, why was the southern kingdom not overtaken? Because under King Ahaz, that's mentioned here, Ahaz had made an allegiance um, with, or an alliance with the Assyrians in order to not be overtaken. Now, whenever he did that, there's some give and take that had to happen. And one of the things that he gave into was the fact that a pagan altar was then set up in Solomon's temple. So right there on the Temple Mount, there was a pagan um, altar that was set up to the Assyrian gods. So something worse was happening than just a physical domination of the people. There was now a spiritual domination of the people that was happening. And people didn't see it. People didn't realize it. The reality that they lived in was not reality. The people, they practiced rituals that were empty and then were full of idolatry. And that was not necessarily because of the paganism that was there, but because that's just the mindset that they fell into of just going through routine, just checking the boxes, just living their life in how they've always done it, but it was empty. It was in vain. The people believed that their alliance with the Assyrians made them impervious to any kind of attack, and so they, they trusted in the Assyrians or in their government to protect them. And they were totally unaware of the spiritual attack that was happening to them, of, of the spiritual assault that was taking place. And Isaiah 
He is given an insight in this book of the Babylonians. The Babylonians that were gaining power and they were about to come and fall upon the Assyrians and take over the Assyrians, but they would also do the same to Judah. And why is this going to happen? Because Judah was living in violations against a holy God because of their apostasy, because of the rejection of God. Now, the message that Isaiah brings includes a, a lot of bad news. There is a lot of bad news that's found in Isaiah, but it also includes an abundance of good news. There is a lot of good news in this prophet's book. It wasn't really the best of times, like most people were thinking, but there are some good times, and there's some good times predicted. These people, they lived in a false sense of security, whether it be because of the Assyrian protection or the, the king's protection of them or their financial status that they had at the time. They still had their land. They still had their money. They still had their, their family members, unlike the northern kingdom. They lived in a false sense of spiritual reality as well, thinking that they were fine with God, that everything that they, they were doing was completely okay. God must not be angry at them because they're still there. Well, the people of Judah, they needed to hear what God's perspective was. They needed to hear reality. And this is what we need as well. Yes. We need reality. And so whenever Isaiah preached these things to them, he is preaching to them the perspective of God, or God's reality. So that's the when. Let's get to the what. So what do we have in front of us? Well, the first words explain it, right? The vision of Isaiah. That's what it is. It's a vision. This, this book contains the vision of Isaiah. Now, there's two words that are used here in verse 1. There's the word vision and the word saw. The word vision and the word saw. These two words in English have the same Hebrew root word. And so they're translated differently as vision and as saw. But the word vision is the, the Hebrew word of chazan. And the, uh, it's used 35 times in Isaiah. The word Saul is the word Hazah, and it is used 48 times in Isaiah. And every usage of the word vision and 36 of the 48 usages of the word Saul refer to the same thing, and that being the revealed truth of God. That this thing that Isaiah saw, it was revealed to him by God. So what we have in front of us is this. A supernatural revelation. We have a supernatural revelation that is recorded for us, preserved for us. The Israelites in the first century, they preserved that book. They, preser they preserved it and hid it and treasured it. I think we should do the same thing. There's something that's necessary in here, something that's so important for us. And just because maybe we can't see, maybe the, the the physical aspect of these things, we can know that it is supernatural. It is working beyond us. It's bigger than us. And this is what Isaiah was communicating to these people in, the, in the, the context that he was in and for us today as well. So Isaiah is, is not to be praised. He's not to be idolized as an individual. We're not to just hold him up like, oh, be just like Isaiah that's not the point of any of the characters of the Bible except for one, and I'll give you one guess of who that is. There's only one that we should lift high, that we should praise, that we should look to and say, that is the one to be like. Isaiah is not the one. Isaiah is the conduit in which God brings reality. God is the one that is supernatural. 
God is the one that brings a supernatural vision to Isaiah and now to us. And so as we start this journey, I think we, we must ask ourselves a question. And this is a question that I want you to ask yourself even now. Do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe that there's something beyond you, beyond us, beyond this world, something that we can't see, we can't tangibly put our hands on or maybe physically see with our eyes? Do you believe in the supernatural? And why I ask the question is because too often we act as though that there isn't anything like that. We, we act and, and talk and, and behave like there is nothing supernatural, that everything's natural, everything's tangible. And this is not how we should act. We must believe in the supernatural. Now, are we going to be able to see those things? No. And, and even as Isaiah is saying that there, he has this vision, he saw these things, this doesn't necessarily mean he actually put his physical eyes on it, but he has some sort of supernatural experience in getting this communication from God. And most of the time, we make our life adjustments not based upon supernatural understandings or supernatural uh, events or, or supernatural uh, words from God, but most of the time we make our life adjustments and changes in life based upon what we can see, what we, we can hear, we can see, we can taste. And this is a dangerous place to be because our, our little view of God, I think, is related to or connected to the distractions of the physical world the natural world. We need spiritual eyes. We, we need to believe in the supernatural God. And Isaiah is going to bring front and center to us the workings of a supernatural God. That he is going to reveal who God is. He's going to reveal what God has been doing and what he is doing, what he's going to do. This is all supernatural. The curtain's going to be pulled back for us. We're going to see, just like Judah should have saw, who this God is. We're going to get a glimpse at the character and the actions of God. And who is this God? He is a supernatural God. I think something that, we should, uh, that would be helpful for us to, to think about as we study through the book of Isaiah is the truth that God is a holy, supernatural God. He is holy and supernatural, meaning that He is not like us in reasoning and logic. He's not like us in demeanor or in passions or in love or in hate or in attitudes or in actions. He is not like us. He is holy. And with this holiness, He's also capable of doing anything and everything that is in alignment with His character. So, there is nothing in the natural world that could restrict him because he is supernatural. This is who he is. What does he do and what do we see from Isaiah? Well, Isaiah tells us that this God, this supernatural holy God, is going to take an evil nation, the Babylonians, and he's going to bring judgment upon his own people for wandering off into idolatry and into paganism this is what this holy God is going to do. The predictions that Isaiah is going to make in this book are truly supernatural ones. And, and there's some really amazing things that he predicts. Very, very, very specific things that he predicts. And how does he do this? Because of the supernatural God. 
And God will clearly claim in Isaiah, He will claim to be the only one who can decree, who can declare, who can determine the future. He will witness, we will witness it several times in several different places throughout Isaiah's book, throughout his vision. We'll see that God alone is the one who can make a plan that cannot be derailed, it cannot be hijacked, it can't be thwarted in some way. And why is this? Because of who he is. He is a holy and supernatural God. There is no other like him. Isaiah, more than any other Old Testament prophet, he also saw the clearest picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. His descriptions of Christ coming to the world, they're they are bathed in the supernatural. They're bathed in, in language of prediction and certainty. And we'll see really many places where Isaiah describes this Christ and the actions of the Messiah as He comes, describing for us really one of the, the clearest pictures, the clearest descriptions in really maybe all of the Bible of the substitutionary atonement of this Christ. And we find that in Isaiah 53. It is by this atonement that Jesus Christ, as we know Him, He will save sinners, but what is also told us in that same chapter, Isaiah 53, is not only is that Messiah going to lay down his life, is going to be the suffering servant, but he's also going to be resurrected from the grave. And this is all for the atonement of sin. Now, there might only be a couple of other books that we could consider to maybe rival Isaiah when it comes to exposing the emptiness of of salvation by religious works. We will see repeatedly that good deeds and good efforts, they are not counted as righteousness. They're not counted as righteousness in the eyes of a holy God. It is only trusting in the work of the suffering servant that will bring about salvation. This is what Isaiah will communicate to us. And so we have the when, we have the what. Now let's talk about the who. Who is this written to? Who, who is the one that's involved in all of this? Well, we have two groups here. We have Isaiah, and then we have two others that I mentioned. We have concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So let's start with Isaiah. We don't know a lot about Isaiah. We do know that he was married. We do know that he had probably a couple sons. It's believed that, that he was related to the royal family somehow in some way, and likely would then have an audience with the kings, these four different kings. It's likely that he had engagement with the, the priest as well of Israel. So he had some sort of leverage or influence to how the nation was operating. And so the words of Isaiah, again, they're, they're not just spoken out into some, some vague audience or some little group of people that have no impact. He is speaking these kinds of words to very important and powerful people. I think that's interesting that he is unafraid to speak such things. But I think he's unafraid because he knows that the supernatural God has given him these words. So, Isaiah, it's traditionally believed that, that he died under King Manasseh. And this is a fun way to go. It's believed that he was, uh, he was killed by being cut in two with a wooden saw. I mean, of all ways to go, uh, a wooden saw. And that's, you know, tradition. I don't know if that's really true, but Isaiah, his name is really important. You, you probably want to write this down. This is really important. Yahweh has saved. That's what his name means. 
Yahweh has saved. Or, another way to say this is, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what Isaiah means. Now, during his life, he had the opportunity to actually see this happen physically. He saw the salvation of the Lord. The Assyrians are coming. God says, no. They, they will not take the southern kingdom, and they don't. Now, God did save his people from destruction, but what Isaiah also now understands, what he's hearing in this book, we will find, is that there's future salvation coming. A future salvation of spiritual destruction. A salvation from that. This is what Isaiah is predicting. And what Isaiah's name means, that salvation is of the Lord, not simply physically, but spiritually speaking. In all reality of what we desperately need, we need our souls saved. And Isaiah, his name means it's in the Lord alone. With a name like Isaiah's, he probably wouldn't be that popular with his friends and family with a name that means that salvation is of the Lord. His, because his name would be a constant reminder that God is the one that saves. Not you, not your government, not your family, not your attendance. None of these things save you. It is God alone. It's not through religious practices or processes. It is God alone. It's not based upon the actions or the, the wills of man, but upon God alone. God saves sinners. This is what happens from this supernatural holy God. He saves sinners. He's the only one that can save sinners. The people of Judah, they, they rarely valued the Lord, and they rarely valued the truth that God is the one who saves. And so Isaiah's name is yelling to the nation that look to the Lord for salvation. It is Him alone that saves. Pastor Ray Ortland uh, has said this. He said, In every age, the simple gospel that God saves sinners is either the thing that thrills you or it is a constant irritant to your self-importance and desire for control. Even in the church, the good news that the Lord saves, the more directly it is applied, inevitably stirs controversy. Well, what is so controversial about God being the one to save sinners? Well, at the heart of the Reformation, this was the issue. This was the issue of, of the Reformation, of how persons are saved, whether it be of God alone or some sort of synergism. And, and synergism, if you don't know what that word means, it, it means that salvation comes by a combinated effort of God and man. This was the core issue of the Reformation. And this still is an issue today that's discussed and argued and debated in churches today and even in our own church. Isaiah has a lot to teach us about that topic, has a lot to say about it. So what can we learn from Isaiah? Well, again, there's a lot. There's a lot of things that we're going to learn. There's a lot of things that we're going to see. But one of the, the main things that we will see from this book is related back to his name is that it's the fact God saves sinners. What can we learn? God is the one that saves sinners. Isaiah, as a whole, we could say that the book is about getting back to the basics of faith. The basics of faith. And what's the basis of faith? God alone. 
that, that's the basis of our faith. It's Him. And so the question that then becomes for us, and, and this is real, I think, uh, one that we need to ponder on a little while is the fact, or this question of, is God enough? Is God enough for you in 2022? The fact for the people of Judah is that God was not enough. What did they trust in? They trusted in themselves, trusted in their government, they trusted in the Assyrians, they, they trusted in their practices. I think this would be good for us to think on. Is God enough for me? Is He enough? Isaiah's message, I think, is extremely relevant for us. It's very timely for us because he's dealing with the exact same thing that we are. The exact same problems that we have today, Isaiah had as well. Now, maybe they had different names, but they're the same things. Let me, let me just give you five observations here. The first being that people trust in themselves or their governments and not the Lord. What's the problem Isaiah was dealing with? The same problem we are. The people trust themselves, Christian people trust themselves or trust their government, and they don't trust God. And who is the one that saves? God alone. God is the one that saves. Another thing is that people practice empty religious rituals. They go through traditional uh, routines and, and, and all these, these strappings of religion, and they think, oh, I'm okay with God. But it's empty. It's empty and in vain. So the people of Judah were doing the same thing. The, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, they were doing the same things. And people today do the same things. A third thing is that people worship other gods, including themselves as gods. And do we not make the worst gods possible? Do we not just make the worst kind of god? Are we not so unpredictable? Are, are we not the one that lies to ourselves the most? We are the worst kind of God. But this is what people do. This is what the people of Judah were doing. They were lying to themselves about who they really worshipped. They gave lip service to God, but they, they really gave no worship to God. And we do the same kinds of things. A fourth thing is that people fear men, but have no fear of the Lord. What did the people of Judah fear? Well, they feared losing their stuff. They feared being killed by the Assyrians. They, they feared the Babylonians. They, they feared all these other kinds of men and kings, but they did not fear the supernatural God. A God who is holy and righteous and just. They did not fear Him. The fifth thing is that people don't want to live in God's reality but their own. And this is really connected back to the third thing of who do you worship? If you, if you worship yourself, you're worshiping your own created reality and not God's reality, you're living in a virtual reality, a fake reality. And people don't want to live by God's reality. They don't want to live by God's word. That's, it's too narrow. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And so they reject that. So the same problems that we deal with today are the same problems that Isaiah was dealing with. And I think there's so much for us to learn here of what God has to say about these things. These issues or mindsets are all, all, all around us in the culture, but the most dangerous place that these things exist is inside the church. 
And these things, they must be purged. They must be repented of in the church. They, they have to go. They cannot coexist. Isaiah's message for those who will not repent, for those that will not turn, for those that will not purge these things from their lives, he has something to say to them. It's actually God, the one speaking, but in chapter 63, verse 10, chapter, six, chapter 63, verse 10, Isaiah records these words. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Jonathan Edwards, who is considered to be one of the, the greatest minds in American history, if not specifically Christian history in America. He preached a sermon in 1741. Maybe you've heard of it. It's, in, it's entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sermon has been shared and preached and preached through for over 250 years. It has not got shuffled away or lost over this time. And why is this sermon the most famous sermon ever delivered in American history? Well, it's because of the response of the people who heard it initially. That first audience that heard these words from this pastor. Before the sermon was even over, people were moaning and groaning, not because lunchtime was approaching, or not because he was so boring to listen to, which is possible. I've heard stories about Edwards. They weren't moaning and groaning over those things. They were moaning and groaning and crying out, how can we be saved? Before the sermon was even over, why was this happening? It was because of the response of these pseudo-Christian people, religious people, who then became born again that shook the colonies and shook the world. What these people realized under Jonathan Edwards, they realized the truth of Isaiah 63.10. Now, Edward's sermon is actually out of Deuteronomy, but the, the, the principle is still there of Isaiah 63.10, that God can and will turn to become your enemy if you will not repent and re you remain godless. What will God do for the unrepentant? He will turn to be their enemy. Now, don't forget who Edwards was preaching to. A church. He wasn't out on the street he wasn't at the local tavern. He was in a church building speaking to church-going people, telling them this truth. If you will not turn, God will turn against you. If you will not repent, if you remain in your sin, God will turn and bring judgment to you. These people Edward spoke to, they believe themselves to be Christians. This is just like the nation of Judah. Isaiah was speaking to. These people believed everything's fine. Everything's okay with us and God. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. God's not coming down on us. Look, look. The, the, uh, the Assyrians took the north, but they didn't take us. There were people that believed themselves to be on God's side. But what did their lifestyle and practices show? They didn't know Him. They didn't know him. And this is what Isaiah is going to do. He's going to convey to them God's perspective, God's reality. He's going to tell them about God's promises. Promises of salvation, but also promises of judgment. 
And this is all bound to the covenant word of a holy and supernatural God. God is always faithful to his word, no matter what. No matter what nation is there or what nation's not there, no matter what king is in place or what king is not in place, God is always faithful. And there is a heap of trouble coming for Judah and for Jerusalem. The nation as a whole, but the city as a whole, there is trouble coming for them. But also what we find is that there is mercy. There's a lot of mercy in this book. God's ultimate purpose was to show mercy and not judgment. And the mercy of God is repeated really all throughout this book, all throughout this prophecy. And what it's doing for us, I think, is giving us another glimpse at who this holy and supernatural God is. He is a merciful God. And He is not comparable to any other kind of God. He's not comparable to you in your attempts to be merciful. And maybe you think that you're more merciful than God, but I already told you you're a really good liar to yourself. So you're not. You're not as merciful as He is. There's no way that you even compare or anybody compares or any other so-called God can compare to Him. He is the most merciful God. Church, if, if we are to experience blessing and we are to experience revival then we must heed the words of Isaiah. We must remember that there are consequences for rejecting and ignoring the God who is over all things and who is holy and who is supernatural. We need to be reminded over and over again who it is that we say that we worship. We say that we worship a God, but but do we really? Because the question is still there. Is God enough for you? We need to be challenged with this reality of who it is we really worship. So who do you worship? Who do you worship? We're going to transition to a time of communion. And as we do that, we, we do this every week as well. We give you an opportunity to reflect upon what you've heard, what you've sang, what we've prayed, the scripture that has been read this morning. I'm going to give you two questions as we prepare the Lord's table this morning. Number one, are you prepared for God's reality check? As we move through Isaiah, as we think through Isaiah, are you ready for the reality check that's going to come your way? And I hope in your mind you're not thinking, yeah, you know, there's this other guy in my, you know, down my row here that he really needs to hear this. Or you're thinking of somebody else that doesn't even come here, and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, they really need to hear these sermons. Please, please don't get distracted by what God wants to say to you through these words. The reality check that he's going to bring to you. So are you ready for it? And the second thing, what does Isaiah 63.10 do to your emotions? I would encourage you, as, we, as I'm going to ask the, the deacons and, and ushers to come to prepare the table, would you just spend a moment reading back through that verse? Chapter 63, verse 10. What does that do to your emotions? Does it stir anything in you? Does it do anything to your heart, to your mind? I want you to just uh, spend a few moments thinking through these things, praying through these things. I'm going to ask our guys to go ahead and come. And uh, as we usually do, we'll dismiss you out of these outside aisles, have you go back to your seat through the middle, uh, be seated with your elements, wait for all of us, and we'll do this corporately. But as you do that, please, please think about 
the fact that God is the one that brings salvation. That this, this moment that we have right here, this is not producing salvation for you. It's not bringing something to you that you didn't have before. This is a remembrance of the covenant relationship that you currently have with God by way of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Would you spend just a few moments and we'll dismiss you out of these aisles.